On today's inaugural episode, I talk with Paula about belonging, holding on to truth in the midst of depression, and how the experience of God's kindness and care pulls her through the dark times of borderline personality disorder. This is Through a Glass Darkly, the podcast about following Jesus while living with a mental illness. My guest today is Paula, a co-worker from Youth Unlimited, the organization that I work for. I heard Paula before I officially met her, and if you've met her, or you listen to this interview, you'll see what I mean. She definitely has a laugh that can fill a whole room. For the last year, Paula has been working alongside me at Light Patrol, the program I lead that reaches out to youth living on the streets of Toronto. Over this year, I've seen her passion for connecting with and caring for marginalized youth, and she's been a huge blessing to myself and the rest of the Light Patrol team. She is an encourager, making sure those she interacts with know that she appreciates and values them. She also has a good sense of humor, which is probably necessary for this type of work. Yet the thing that has stood out to me the most has been her openness and vulnerability about the impact of her mental illness on her life, and how she connects her mental health to her faith. She's probably the first person I thought of when I began planning this podcast, and so I'm really excited that I get to talk with her today. Finally, just a warning, my conversation with her includes talk about suicide. So we're here again with Paula uh, for everybody listening. Mistakes were made and our first interview did not get recorded with the quality that I was hoping for. So she has graciously agreed to come back on and uh, do it again. So thank you very much for for coming again. Um, I'm a little bit sad. I feel like I had a really good intro line, but that's okay. You did. You did. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) We'll always have that anyways. So, yeah, so let's just start kind of from the beginning in terms of what led to your faith. What kind of steps did you take that led up to you deciding to follow Jesus? Literally, I took one step uh, trying to get this annoying girl off my case in high school who would, without fail, every day meet me at my locker after school and ask me to go to her youth group up on the hill at the church and and I kept saying no because I don't want to go to the youth group. I don't want to go to church. I don't want any of that in my life. Um, and so finally, one day, just out of annoyance, I said, fine, tell me, tell me what time I have to be there. And I showed up to, uh, to the youth group. And we were watching a VeggieTales video in the basement, which I thought was really weird to do for people my age. But whatever, I went with it. And then um, at the end, the pastor asked us if we've ever hurt someone if we've, if we need forgiveness and uh, if anyone's hurt us we need to forgive them. And I just kept putting up my hand because I resonated with the questions. And, uh, and then afterwards, multiple people came up to me, especially the one who was knocking down my locker every day and, uh, and just said, congratulations. And I was like, for they're like forgiving your heart to the Lord. And I said, okay, what does that mean? And then she said, uh, it means you come to church on Sunday. So I was like, <laughs> great like that was that was pretty simple discipleship right there and so I showed up to church on Sunday but I remember walking in the church and feeling like I belonged right away like people had remembered my name from Friday um and then some parents had come up to me and said hi Paula welcome we heard about you like that kind of stuff and so I was like that's weird and that is actually what brought me back to church I'd say for a good month at least like I just kept going because people knew my name and because it seemed friendly and 
with something to do. And then as I, as I got to know um, who this, this Jesus character was, right. And I, I learned what, um, what his, his plan was uh, for me and how much he loved me and that I didn't just belong in that church, but I belonged to him. Um, I just started to, to, yeah, just be more interested in it. And as I obviously searched and, and learned more, I just really just, I put my faith in him. And, and so I just walked it out and showed up to youth group every Friday and showed up to church every Sunday, just like my friend wanted me to. <laughs> right. Cause apparently that's what Christians do. Yeah. That's all you have to do. They just go to church. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations. Come to church. <laughs> Did you know this, this girl, like why, why was she all over you? No, I like, I was pretty friendly. I'm a pretty friendly person and social and loud and funny. And so um, I guess she was probably just in one of my classes. And so she just kept coming to me after school and her locker wasn't even that close to mine, to be honest with you. So it's just weird. I guess she just felt the prompting really when I look at it now and understand it, she just felt the prompting. What things, because you say you just, you were going back because you just like the feeling of belonging at first. Like you didn't actually really understand yeah. what it meant about you gave your heart to Jesus. What were some of the things in your life at that point that were helping to introduce you to who this Jesus person was and that was kind of growing your trust in him? Obviously we, we touched on this, but the belonging thing was huge to me, right? Is that my family loved me. I know that I'm confident of that, but as a middle child, um, I didn't really feel like I necessarily belonged in my home really, because my, my younger siblings were really close and tight. My older siblings were close and tight. And then obviously my parents were close as well. Um, and I think a lot of that was, was how I had viewed it, how I perceived it. I'm not necessarily saying my family had done that to me or whatever, but um, my perception of that, yeah, my perception of that was, was a big deal and something I didn't really know I needed healing from at the time. And so just the fact that I had belonged and the fact that some loved me um, unconditionally, as they said, right? Like that's what was being spoken at the pulpit and not just that, but also the fact that, that this Jesus guy, and I obviously say that with reference as, as a teenager, but as now then I did a teenager, but the Jesus guy um, had a plan for me and there's some purpose in my life, right? That my life wasn't just about me anymore. So the sense of just being a teenager and just going to school and coming home and going to school and coming home, what for, it, it actually gave me, and he gave me a lot of purpose, which changed everything for me. What ways were you involved in your church? It sounds like you went quite a bit. And certainly if you got that feeling of belonging, that would have been a place that you wanted to be. Yeah, I, I, uh, I was pretty much at church every time the door opened. And so because of my personality, um, because of, of my sense of humor, I had been approached by almost every staff member to be a part of their ministry. So I got asked to be in children's ministry on Sundays. I got asked to be junior high leader. I got asked to be a youth leader. I got asked to be on the worship team because I have some rhythm. Uh, I got asked to uh, greet people at the door because I'm friendly, right? Mm -hmm. I got asked to show up to the outreaches we had because I can talk to anyone. That doesn't scare me. And so um, quite quickly, like it's a six-month mark actually of me even being a follower of Christ and claiming to be a follower of Christ. I was um, on every team that you can imagine. Right. And so I was serving and it brought me life. It brought me life because I belong, because I was using my gifts, because, you know, in an insecure, insecure way, it like it made me feel good. Right. Like it made me feel good that, that I was sought after, that I was asked to do all these things. Um, and so I did them. Like I, I served, but I realized um, through the help of my youth pastor, especially 
that 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 isn't um, the healthiest, right? I've been taught that by certain leaders in the church um, to just like wear yourself thin and just serve the Lord. That's what it means, come to church, serve the Lord. But um, through the help of my youth pastor, I realized that I was spreading myself too thin and had to really just take a step back and be like, okay, which area do I feel called to serve in at this time? Where is my, what, who does my heart beat for? Which turned out to be youth ministry, which is not very ironic based on what I do now. But um, yeah, and so I kind of just had to reflect and sit down and just realize that that, that wasn't healthy and, and uh, just kind of take a, take a step back, which was hard because I felt like it belonged. I felt like people loved me and, and people's love is so conditional, right? And so the feedback wasn't necessarily healthiest in the case where people got ticked at me that I, wasn't serving anymore I wasn't helping them anymore that they had to find someone to fill the gap or that I chose something over their ministry you know right yeah 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 I, I can see them you would you were like a like a 10 threat you could do 15 different things and you know you were right. good at them so I'm sure you know yeah. the leadership at the church was just like yes Paula eager to serve yeah. and can we can get her to do everything well and so. I think that's I think that's accurate right and I was always on time and I just I loved it. I loved it. I really did. Yeah. It became too much. So you're very involved with your church. Um, and then your youth pastor pulls you aside and, you know, is a little bit concerned about spreading yourself too thin. So you focus on youth ministry yes. from that point on, what were some kind of highlights in terms of your faith story of really key moments where you can look and think, okay, like that was, that was very significant in terms of developing my faith and my walk with Jesus? Yeah, I think um, my pastor still to this day is one of my favorite, my youth pastor still to this day is one of my favorite people um, I've ever had the privilege of serving under and serving with and and he modeled the life of Christ, right? And obviously not with perfection, but he modeled it as close as I think I, I have seen it um, as far as up close and personal goes. I think highlights just teaching me, who, like helping me see who I was which is very key, um, helping me see how, who I was and also um, honing my gifts and allowing me to use them, not just in my own community, but also wherever else we went. And then also, you know, when he sees a gift that I had or he sees it something good, he would come and encourage it and just kind of fan it into flame, which is foundational for any, especially a youth, knowing that they have something to offer and give an opportunity to by someone who's modeling it themselves, right? Um, mm -hmm. I went to uh, a discipleship school after, and that was, yeah, that was pivotal for many reasons. It led me to an internship that I did in Vancouver with uh, their main and Hastings of 16,000 drug addicts in a six block radius. And highlight, I say now, because it was so foundational and pivotal for, for my faith and also for my life. It wasn't a highlight during, during, but I remember coming in off the streets and just weeping like on the carpet in, in my office and feeling just so dark and depressed and sad for my friends on the street. But so I felt it. it, there was kind of like a parallel that my life, I'd moved away from everyone. I was alone. I felt that darkness and that depression myself and how the Lord had shown me in that moment um, that I am no different from the people that I serve a heroin addict give it a youth now in a youth group whatever the case may be that we're all human beings we're all broken human beings and i think again in the moment that wasn't a highlight clearly but i think it, it was it was so pivotal in my relationship with the lord and the faith and the faith element 
knowing that he loves me no matter what, that I belong to him no matter what, no matter what I go through, but that also he can still and chooses to still use me and, and partner with me to serve other people is huge. Mm-hmm. It was absolutely huge. And then carrying that forward, knowing that anybody I serve is, I'm no better than, I'm no better than them, that he loves everybody, that he loves everybody, that we are all part of his, his creation. You know, we're all made in the image of God and, and that he meets us all in our brokenness. Mm-hmm. people on the street and me on the floor who felt just as broken and messed up and wondering how in the world he would use me in such a place right mm-hmm. and then just serving him i mean that's that's those have been the highlights of certain i'm sure there are most significant moments that i could think of but i think it all comes down to him me belonging to him him loving me no matter what if i'm serving seven days a week in the church which i don't think is his desire or if i'm crying on the floor sobbing with nothing to offer. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's an important lesson. It's a hard lesson. It is. I feel like it's a difficult lesson to learn deeply. I think most Christians would agree with that because theologically that is what we believe, but to actually internalize it and live your life out of that, I think is, is a much different story. Absolutely. I, I think, I think you can tell when that is actually the operating principle that somebody lives from rather than just something that they know is true yeah and so, i think there's seasons too right it's like mm-hmm. an ongoing process where you have to continually remind yourself in a culture that strives for everything else right or bases yeah. their image based on a title or what they own or so many different things base our worth on usually around yeah. acquiring or doing yes absolutely so obviously this is a podcast about faith and mental illness so let's shift gears a bit then and, and talk a little bit about your experience of living with a mental illness. When you look back at your life, when would you say your first awareness of something being off, even if you didn't necessarily know what to call it or were officially diagnosed or anything like that? Yeah, I, I remember, I'm a big on words. I remember uh, a report card I got in grade eight. I was really athletic. I was on every single team and I was like, not to toot my own horn, the best on every single team. And I was running for athlete of the year. It was kind of a given that I was going to get female athlete of the year. And then I didn't. And I was very confused because I was like, that girl isn't even nearly as good as I am on the field or the court, you know, and uh, Speak my truth. report card. Yeah. My, my report card had told me why. And it said that I had an attitude and a mood problem. And that it was so out of character for Paula. And so those words, as much as a a 13 year old can process, just really like stuck out to me being like, that is out of character for me. Because normally I'm very like easy to get along with and I'm happy and I'm, you know, encouraging. And so I think reading that on my report card and also at the time came with a huge cost. Like looking back at grade eight athlete of the year award is nothing, but to a grade eight who was really good at it and thought it was hers, it was a huge deal to have lost something. Mm-hmm. So that moment was like extremely significant to me, being like it was out of character. And then me being like, what is wrong with me? Right. Like, why would I have had so much attitude and been so moody to the point where I lost an award that I deserved? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then throughout high school, I remember just feeling that same thing. I'd be happy one moment, and the next moment, I'm like deeply depressed. And nothing even really warranted that kind of shift, right? Like sometimes something happens or someone says something to you or you have a circumstance to find that someone passed away. And obviously that makes sense why your mood would, would shift. But 
I don't ever even remember having something like that happen where I would feel such two extremes and really quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, and so then I chalked it up as being a teenager, right? Like getting, you know, female and just maybe blah, blah, blah. And then I remember it just starting to really affect my life. And then I went away to Bible college later when I was, when I was 26 and moved to Edmonton and, uh, school was just really tough for me. It was really tough for me. It was, um, I couldn't concentrate. I didn't really care. I just looked around and felt like I didn't belong anywhere. Kind of my old mentality that I had prior to youth group. And I wasn't getting the best grades, right? Like I just, I just felt gross. I felt blah. I felt dark. I didn't know what was happening. And so I drop out of Bible college in my second year and I go get a job managing a coffee shop. And I'm loved. I'm doing great. Everything's great. I'm having fun. The customers love me. They're tipping me large. My manager loves me. They promote me to assistant manager. Uh, said I'm going to get my own store in a couple of months. And all of a sudden that dark passengers came back and it started just spiraling. I didn't show up for work sometimes. Um, I did some stupid stuff. Uh, I just didn't care about the customers as much as I did previously. And then I remember losing my job uh, and going home and being like, this, I can't do this anymore. Like this is affecting my life and I have no idea what it was. So I walked into a, uh, a psych ward in Edmonton to try to get some help and they didn't help me. They laughed at me and said I wasn't depressed, that I was jobless and sent me on my way, which is part of the broken system. But I knew that I had to figure out what was wrong with me. I knew it because they weren't helping me. No one else was, but I knew something was wrong. So I just dug and did research and dug and did research. So I doctor after doctor after doctor. And it wasn't until um, a couple months ago, 14 years later, that I got a diagnosis. That is a long time. It really is. Yeah. What I'm sure was very frustrating and and tiring searching to know that something was off, but just not, not be able to put a name to it for you. When you would do that switch, when that switch would happen and you would go from joyful outgoing Paula to when that darkness would settle and, you know, things would change quite significantly. Were you at a point where you thought, Oh, I, I need to hide this. Like I need to try my best to be the person that they expect me to be, or to be the person that I know I am when I'm not this or in those spaces, was it more just like, this is too overwhelming, or I don't care, or I feel so much shame and I just need to isolate? There's a mix for sure. Because it wasn't something I could explain, right? Mm-hmm. There are situations in life where people expect you to be sad and they're, they come alongside you and they help. But in these cases, nothing had really even necessarily happened circumstantially. It was all in my head. It's stuff mm-hmm. that happened in my head or I spiraled or I you know, misread a situation or whatever or sometimes, like I said, often, I don't know what the heck happened. I just know that I went from A to B, right? There were times, I know there are times where I would hope somebody that I really like trusted would ask me if I'm okay and actually give me the time of day to just cry. But I didn't often find that given the context. I'm not do that at Starbucks, right? Like, but for the most part, I say the response is outside of that moment because I don't know where I'll be is I, I go into my room and I isolate. And it could be days where I'm not texting anyone back. The lights are out. I, I actually, last summer, five, for five days, I didn't eat, drink, or go to the bathroom. I just stayed oh. in my room. And I, I, only, I only texted one person. Right. Just because she was, she was very concerned. And so I was mm-hmm. like, I'm fine. I'm, just, I'm going to bed. That's it. Like, just so she knew, five days. Um, because you feel, you feel... You feel confused, you feel dark, you feel embarrassed, you feel alone, you feel isolated, you feel like no one will understand. 
And you also, you actually, oddly, you don't care about anything, but you care about the people you love and you don't want them to have to see you like this or to feel it with you, although you do. It's so, it's so confusing, right? You want someone to understand you. You want someone to be there, but you also don't want them to feel burdened because it's not something they can fix. It's not like I, I fell off my bike and someone comes and picks me up and takes me to the x-ray, right. right? Or I don't have money and someone comes over and brings me a meal. It's yeah. I'm suffering in huge ways. The company helps, but it won't fix it. And I also know what that cost my friend to sit there yeah. while someone's sobbing and won't get out of bed. And plus I haven't showered is, is a hard thing to sit with and a hard thing to watch when I can't even explain it to them, you know? But that, that's, that's always the go-to, whether whatever happens in the moment, the context of it, the go-to is to, to come home and to hide and to isolate, not talk. And then once I'm good, I'll be texting. Yeah. So very significant, extremely significant swings. Like those, that's, that's a very significant depressive episode there where if you're, yeah. you know, getting to the point where you can't even get out of bed for, for days, that's, yeah. Yeah. So you had mentioned that you, you had been searching for help and trying to figure out what was going on for 14 years. And then just a few months ago, something broke. Yeah. My friend asked me if I would go to cam H and I said, no, I have no faith in the system. I said, absolutely not. I said, I walked into a psych ward. I sat there by myself, which is scary as heck to even walk in there. I filled out paperwork for like an hour, which I don't have the capacity for. And they took me down this long hall and three of them sat there and I like, I was vulnerable and then they laughed like actually laughed the lady laughed and said you're not depressed you're just jobless and literally sent me on my way and so when my friend says will you go to KMH I said heck no like why would I do that because of my experience right mm-hmm. and then she said would you go if I went with you and then I was like okay I felt safe with her right and so I was like okay fine because at that point I just wanted help like I just don't want to keep going through this right but at the same mm-hmm. time I had no faith in the system but I said to my friend, if you have hope for me in this moment, like in, in the process, I'll do it. I'll do it. And so um, I ended up calling my doctor because they, so she, so my friend called CAMH to see what the process was. And they said, because of COVID, I had to get a referral from my doctor. And then there'd be an online uh, meeting with a psychiatrist, like an hour and a half to two hours. So I called my doctor and he was actually done for the day, but he sat on the phone with me for like half an hour. He's my walk-in doctor and he's so great. And so I kind of already felt at ease that somebody was like fighting for me. Mm-hmm. because he could have just went home and not even called me back. Right. Yep. And so then the referral went in and then my doctor actually called me back the next week. He only works Thursdays. And he says, Paul, did you hear back? I said, no. And he said, here's the number, call them right now and ask them what the heck's up. Oh, so nice. again, I was like, okay. And so I called them and they said, oh yeah, you're on, you're on the list. We were going to call you eventually. Let's book an appointment. And so they booked an appointment the next Wednesday. And so my friend had come here and sat in the room with me. Um, and I felt fine that day, but still it was nice to have company. Mm-hmm. And the first thing the psychiatrist said was, you got in really fast. Like oh, you got nice. in, which I, I attribute obviously to the Lord, but also to doc, my doctor, that he was mm-hmm. like really caring for me that way, right? And so we talked for an hour and a half and everything she asked and said made perfect sense. And she, um, she ruled out bipolar because that, uh, that was what we thought that could have been because of my extreme highs, my extreme lows. We ruled that out for several reasons, which is too much to explain right now. But then she said that I have borderline personality disorder, not to be confused with multiple personality disorder, because that's what I thought right. and other people think, but borderline, just the extreme, the extreme mood swings right. and the period that they are. 
that they happen in. So uh, I felt so relieved. I felt like I, you wouldn't have thought if you saw me five minutes after my <laughs> two hour assessment that I had just gotten out of assessment uh, because I, I had a smile on my face. I felt hopeful. I felt relieved. I felt so thankful that my friend had offered to do that for me. I had a way forward. She gave me options of therapy. I had a way forward. I had the energy to call the places and figure out what was best for me. And then my church came alongside me and paid the whole $840 bill for my group therapy, which starts next week. So it was not, yeah, it was not what I expected it to be. It was actually quite simple. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's not for those listening. It's not a simple process at all. As, as you've heard, I tried and that was only one time I got denied right in. It's been 14 years. I've been fighting this thing for since I was 12. Right. So Mm -hmm. I don't mean it to say it was an easy, smooth process, but this part of it was what exactly what I needed, I guess, in exactly the right time frame. So yeah, that's great. I'm very happy for you. I know. Thank you. Me too. 14 years is a long time. Ah, well, there's not since 12. Is a long yes. time, but. but 14 of intentional, like intentionality when it comes to getting help. Yeah. It's still a long time. Yeah. I know it's been fairly recent that you've gotten this specific diagnosis, but have you at all reflected on basically your whole life and have like the puzzle pieces kind of fallen into place a little bit where you're like, okay, yeah, that now I understand, you know, this, either this specific situation or this part of my life, like, you know, the way that I felt or the things that happened. Oh yeah. Everything. <laughs> like there's like just reading through what borderline personality disorder is and watching the videos and doing the research that I did. It, it actually gave me some compassion for myself hmm. because my trigger, it, it my go-to is shame, right? I'm an, I'm not, I'm unloved. I am a horrible friend. I can't keep a job. I can't even finish Bible college. Like all this stuff would go through my head um, during it. And, and sometimes when I look back on my life, but realizing it had a name and that it is a sickness and that's not my fault. And I don't mean there are choices I made that were my choice and they were my fault, right? Like I'm not saying, this label has covered every mistake I made in my life or every season. It hasn't, but it has a majority of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the situations I've been through, the friendships that I've lost, the relationships that have been altered, the jobs that I, I couldn't keep jobs. I kept moving around all the time, running away from things. It all made sense. And I showed a couple of my friends the video, some who have known me for two years, some have known me longer, and they, their jaw dropped because right. everything was me. Like my, I was like, you always think extreme. Why do you have to think extreme? It's one, that's part of it, right? Right. It's part of it doing, it's part of it texting someone, do you still love me? Because I'm stressed out, laying in bed, crying, thinking someone's going to abandon me when there's no sign of that. It's just, my brain tells me that I'm not lovable and that someone's going to leave me and that I'm not able to keep friendships because I haven't. So all this stuff, they're looking at it going, oh my gosh, this makes perfect sense. And so I did the same looking over my life going like, okay, this is why this happened and this happened in this friendship and I couldn't keep this and I don't, didn't keep my friends and I thought they were going to abandon me so I pushed them away. This is why this happened. This is what my extreme thinking goes. So since then, I've actually changed a lot just by being self-aware mm-hmm. where a thought will come in my head and I'm like, that's extreme thinking. Don't, that's not true. And then I tell myself the truth, right? It's like mm-hmm. I, I've had, I've only had one bad day since the middle of June. That's great. So, yeah. So I, and then it was, a, it was a quick one. It was like one night. So, which normally would go in a, a week or five days or whatever. Right. But um, mm. it's been so freeing for me to know what I have and to understand it a bit more and to, yeah, just to recognize things like that's not, she's not going to leave you. Right. Like your right. friend's not going to leave you. There's no sign of that. Like just relax. 
Yeah, it sounds like almost the diagnosis is like a piece of solid ground that you can stand on when other things are shifting in your head, right? Because at least, mm-hmm. you know, you can cling to that. It's, mm-hmm. And then you can see like, oh, that's that's an unhealthy way of thinking. I know that that is not actually true or that's not how I should be thinking in terms of like healthy thinking. Yeah, um, absolutely. So that's, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's very freeing. Also, when you reflect back on your life, have you been able to identify ways that this mental illness, even before you knew what it was, how it's shaped your faith? And I'll leave that broad, however way you want to answer that in terms of what parts of your faith it shaped. Yeah, I, I am certain beyond a shadow belief that, that the Lord is present and that he is, he's faithful. Like that, that's huge to me, right? Like in the midst of my darkest and literally like my darkest nights, somehow he has shown himself faithful enough for me to make it through the night. Right. Cause there's no other reason I can think about why I even would go on when I'm sitting in a field with pills. Right. Like just thinking how that even happened or him laying someone like laying me on someone's heart in that very moment that they call. Right. right. Stuff like that, where it's just you, I know that he sees, I know that he sees it. I know that he sees me. I know that he's present, you know, like that time I was crying in the, on the floor that I talked about before and just feeling this presence. And it's not about feelings and you don't always feel it. But in that moment, I knew beyond a shadow of doubt as he's teaching me that lesson that I'm just as broken, but just as loved as the people I serve. You can't, I can't deny those experiences. Right. Right. And so knowing that having those throughout my life, not just then shape my faith in the Lord, knowing he's present and he's faithful. And that I'm loved despite it, right? Mm -hmm. But then when I'm in those dark moments, my go-to, ironically, is that Jesus hates me. (laughs) Right. Right? So it's Mm -hmm. like, you you know, because you read scripture and you read from from beginning to end that he is a covenant-keeping God. He's faithful. He's loving. He cares, right? You, You can read that. You can believe it as deeply as you want to. It's evident. You have experiences that tell you the same, Right. Mm-hmm. Like me laying on the floor, or other things I've been through, or me, you know, running out of milk in Bible college and saying, Lord, now what? And next thing you know, and I didn't tell a soul, there's a knock on my door and two of my classmates bring me to their car and their trunk and their backseat is full of groceries for me, wow. like from milk to meat, right? right? So the only explanation in those moments are the Lord is present and he knows my needs and he takes care of me and he loves me. He loves me. He's kind to me right? Mm -hmm. Which is a story of my life. But then in those, in those dark moments, you wrestle with that very fact, right? Um, But I think in the, in the, in the good days, in the light days, because I'm able to see it, that's, that's the difference. When you're, when you're struggling with mental illness, you're blinded to that stuff. You actually can't see it. And your brain is going to tell you the opposite, right? Mm -hmm. It's foundational. The good times are foundational to help you get through the dark times. Right. So even though I'm sitting there thinking Jesus hates me or I'm wrestling with that or no one loves you or whatever the case may be, I think in some odd way, the truth that I've let get such so deep into my heart during the good times and the experiences I've experienced, the faith I have in the Lord that's deepened through this and through life in general, it, it pulls you through those dark times. Right. Literally, thank God that it does. Yes. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Literally, thank God. Yeah. How about some of the the practices of Christianity, for lack of a better word, the things that we actually do? What things are maybe easier, if there are any, and what things are more difficult because of 
just the fact of your mental illness? Mm-hmm. Easiest worship is the easiest. And not, not me standing in my room, raising my hands. Sometimes, honestly, I can't even say the words, but I put on worship music and I allow the artist or the worship leader, whoever it may be, to believe in sing the truth for me. Hmm. So it's saturating my mind, right? right? Like it's there. It's saturating my mind. Sometimes lines stick out and I cry. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes I don't feel anything. Sometimes it maybe not even appears to have helped me, hmm. but I'm allowing them to do that for me because I don't have the words, right? right. Or I just mumble through tears like a hallelujah. Like, you know, like it's like right. something so simple, but that that's the easiest because it takes the less amount of energy. Yes. My prayers, my prayers would look like, what the hell, God? You know, like that, mm. that, or are you ever going to heal me or mm. help? Right. Mm. So that, that happens, but they're very short and they're very just, they're just short. Uh, reading the word is almost impossible because I have no capacity to read. Like I don't have the energy, like writing, like I said, filling out those forms in the psych ward in that state of mind was almost impossible because you just cannot, you can't function, right? You don't have the energy to read and to write and to think and to think about dates. And when did you feel this? Like, this is so tired in the same way. I think reading the word. And even if I were to listen to it audibly, the same thing, it's too much thinking, it's too much mm-hmm. processing, it's too much. So that, that's, uh, that's definitely not, would you call not eating for five days fast? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. They but uh, yeah, like, but yeah, like that, that's uh, like, I, unless you can think of another practice that, that is on your heart that way, those, those are how I wrestle or participate or don't participate in those in a really dark time. I'm wondering how you even get to the point where you are able to put those things into your life in the middle of a really dark depressive episode, because I, I found, and I think from hearing from other people, it's actually really hard to even want healthy, good things in those moments. Mm -hmm. So is it like, are you just, I use the term like faking it till you make it like, do you just not actually want any of that, but you know, in some part of your brain or at some level that it's good for you, or is there still a part of you that is craving goodness even in those really dark times i say for me i want freedom i want i want to be free from these thoughts i don't want to lay in bed and want to to take my life and die like i think i think how painful that is for our father to even though he understands how painful it is for me to say that right like imagine one of your sons obviously not now they're young but coming up to you and saying i just want to die yet Mm -hmm. you and amanda have done everything you can to love them and to take care of them and to help them and to support them. I think that's so painful for the Lord, which brings more shame to me. Right. But Mm -hmm. I, I want so badly to be healed and so badly to be free that I think I, I, I know sometimes when I have the energy, I, I know what's good and what's helpful. Um, So I try right to the extent that I can, again, I can't pick up the Bible and read because I don't have energy, but I can try to say like, please Lord help me you know, or just help me fall asleep. Just please just let me fall asleep. So I don't have to think. Right. Or, or texting a friend, which, which I have done sometimes just saying, can you just speak life over me? Mm -hmm. Knowing that someone's just doing that. Right. Or, or I'll send a prayer emoji and they know what that means. And that just helps me get through it. So you, you don't necessarily want to do the, the things you know that you should, but you want the end result. 
Right. But it's it's not like a laziness. It's not like if I want to lose weight, oh, okay, but I'm not going to work out. It's not like it's not like that. It's like a, the capacity thing. Yeah. You don't actually necessarily have the capacity to do those things, but you know that if anyone can help you, it's Christ. Mm-hmm. And so you do what you can in the in the moments you can just to to call out to him or just say help, right? Yeah, yeah, which is so, calling out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You mentioned shame there too. You know, the shame of of feeling those things or desiring those things for your life and knowing how much it would hurt God. How do you deal with shame and what role does shame play in your faith? I don't deal with it properly when I when I'm in those moments. That that's what actually keeps me down longer. Kind of when you you come out of it you're able to see the truth more. You're able to cling to the truth more. So I think it just, it just honestly comes down to that where once kind of like the cloud is lifted and I'm starting to feel a little like, like I'm, I'm feeling less numb or more alive. I can remind myself of the truth that, that I felt that day on the floor that he loves me despite my brokenness. Mm-hmm. And I think honestly, it's just the truth of that. The, the shame thing I wrestle with the most is if I have sent my friend a bad text in that moment, or if I have needed someone and they couldn't, and I got pissed at them. Right. Like, I think that that shame is harder to pull out of because it's human capacity and it's humanness. Like I have a choice if I'm going to continue to love my friend or not, they have the same choice. You know, pastor Joanne has the, the, that's the name from a long time ago, but pastor Joanne has the ability to love me if I'm serving in kids ministry or to not love me if I say, Hey, I've chosen youth ministry, right? Like it's human, human love is, is finicky and is, is emotional and it's, it's not always constant. So the shame piece in my faith really just plays out when it comes to the body of Christ more than it does with my relationship with the Lord, because I know that once I'm getting out of that fog, I know the truth and I believe the truth. Right. But there's no scripture that says, your friend's going to forgive you for that text and understand that you're sick and love yeah. you anyway. So hang on to that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and if the past has been different and people haven't, you, that's when the fear kicks in. Right. But as far as the Lord, like, yeah, the shame in the moment, it, it keeps me down longer um, for sure. But then as, as the fog lifts, it gets a little easier to cling to truth. So you talked a lot about the role that friends and other people in your life play in terms of supporting you. And obviously the body of Christ, the church is meant to be that as well. How does your mental illness play into how you see yourself fitting with like fitting into the body of Christ? On one end, I feel like it has made me more understanding, more compassionate towards other people. Now, not perfect by any means. So I think me being um, taking on roles such as like leading grief share or helping youth like I did a couple of weeks ago who are struggling with mental health. I think that, that my experience plays big roles in that, right? Cause I'm able to come alongside someone and be like, okay, good job getting out of bed today. Cause that was probably the hardest thing for you to do. What do you need to, um, what, what do you need me to do? Right. Do you need to cry? Do you need to talk? Do you want to get distracted? Do you want to play games? Do you want to whatever? Right. I think in that sense, it's made me more effective. I would say, but it's also made me, I don't know if I'm not just going to say that it hasn't, it's kind of made me more judgmental and more impatient towards other people who don't get it. Maybe mm-hmm. like when I'm hurting the last place to want to go is church. 
because I'm afraid that people don't know how to respond to me or will say something dumb or will ignore me, right? Even though I can understand, I'm maybe not as approachable or, and I can tell myself just like I teach people grief share that people mean well, right? They might say something dumb, but they're actually just not knowing what to do when they're trying to show you they care, right? So, and, and also just having more mission to feel like, and not in a cocky way, but that I can, I can help equip the church to better take care of people who are, who are struggling. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of different angles. I look at it when it comes to, when it comes to the body of Christ, right. Mm-hmm. And being, and being thankful for it and being thankful that I can text someone and say, pray for me, you know, because yeah. I do believe that prayer is important, right. Being thankful that, you know, someone may extend more grace to me in those moments and those times, because they do love the Lord. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's different elements. There's definitely different elements of what that looks like when it comes to the body. It seems like when you first became a Christian, when the girl invited you to the youth group, that belonging was such an important part of what drew you to faith and then kind of what kept you there for a long time as you continue to learn more about who Jesus was. Would you say that you still have a sense of belonging within the church? I think belonging is something I struggle with. Like, I don't even know what the definition, I mean, yes, I know I could read the Webster dictionary, but I don't, I'm trying to really just navigate what belonging looks like and what expectations look like when it comes to people that's like i think the biggest thorn in my flesh i i can sit around the table yesterday at our our grief share leader barbecue and know that i'm loved for sure and know that i belong around that table right Right. and i can go to light patrol meeting and feel like i belong in the team um which i do which you do uh yes which i do yes i feel i do feel that but then another day and not my darkness like just in a normal kind of day I can wrestle with feeling like I don't belong because my phone goes untexted for three days. Right. Like it's like, it's it's something that I really, it's my hardest thing to navigate. But at the end of the day, like belong is, belong is a heavy word for me. It's a heavy word to use, but at the end of the day, like I, I know that I'm loved and I'm cared for. If that's the definition of belonging, yes. But if belong means that I'm thought about and embraced, at all times, I would say I wrestle with that, but I don't even know if that's a a realistic expectation either. Right. And you may not be able to answer this, but what role do you feel that your mental illness plays into the shaping of those expectations or even necessarily the way that you react if those expectations aren't meant or if they are? Do you think that's more like a personality thing or is that a symptom at times of borderline personality disorder that you live with? Uh, I'd say both. I'd say the mental illness, it, it magnifies it for sure. So it gets worse, my thoughts, my expectations, my frustration with people not being there. Um, but I think in the day-to-day, it's something I wrestle with personality-wise also. And I think for those of you who know the Enneagram and even think it's a thing, I'm a four, which means I want to be unique and significant. So if someone says, hey, my friend laughs like you, I cringe inside. So I'm like, no one laughs like me. I'm right. Unique, right? Well, no one does laugh like you. But, so yeah, well, thank, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Everyone listens to that. That's great. But I also naturally don't feel like I belong anywhere. And so what I've worked on with counseling is, is instead of seeing in ways I don't belong or looking for those, which I make up in my head often, sometimes I don't belong. We don't always belong everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. But instead to actually look for it, it, evidence that I do belong. So that's what I start to do. That's a tool I use to be like, do not think you don't belong here. You are invited on the Zoom call, (laughs) right? Right. Like you were invited on the Zoom call. You belong here. 
right? Yeah. Or you're sitting at their table. They invited you, you belong here, right? right. So stuff like that, stuff like that helps. But yeah, it, the mental, yeah, so the mental illness magnifies it. But I've, I, it's something I wrestle with when I'm, when I'm not um, in a dark place also. Again, I know that the official diagnosis was fairly recent, but what kinds of things have you built into your life to be healthy? Yeah, absolutely. So every morning I, I start with some kind of routine and it's not some kind of the same routine because that's what routine means, but I go out on the mor- in the morning on my balcony and I have a, a, a vegetable garden there that I have, I have planted and, and nurture, which alone brings me life just sitting there and realizing, you know, that, Hey, I put seeds and I watered it. Now I have jalapenos, you know, and I, I have a hymn book um, that I bought at a vintage store. So I meditate on one hymn a day and just see what words stick out or what sentence sticks out. And, and I just, it actually changes. Not that I wake up in a bad mood, but it changes the, the disposition of my morning and just the outlook. And then I journal. So the journaling has been incredibly helpful for me because I can journal anything and everything, right? Anything right. I'm feeling, a dream I had, my emotions, my gratitude, uh, prayers to the Lord. Um, so I set my day like that, that helps, that makes my life a lot, a lot more full and, and healthier for sure. I have, uh, like two months ago, started eating really good, um, and not depriving myself. So everyone out there eat an Oreo if you want an Oreo, but I, I've, I've eaten, I've, yeah, I've eaten really well. Um, a lot of veggies and fruit. I have a juicer. Nice. Yeah. So like hemp seeds, all that kind of stuff. That's helped me. I even said that actually kind of came to my attention today. I just said to my friend, I go, maybe part of the reason I've had a bad day in since, since mid June is because of my diet. Like, it's like, I feel like I'm feeding my, my body what it needs to be fed. Right. And then like, I, I go for a walk every day, at least, uh, at least one, which is being outside and again, the weather is, is allowing that. And I take care of myself. So I got a haircut the other day. I went and sat at a coffee shop today on a patio and just didn't do anything. I just sat there and took in the air and took in the pumpkin spice latte that I love. Yeah, I, I do things I like. I like to read. So I sit down and read, you know, I call a friend if I'm thinking about them and I need some, you know, someone to talk to, not meaning I need someone like I have to talk about something, but just meaning that, or if I'm thinking about someone, I call and they say, wow, I needed that phone call today. You know, like I just, yeah, there's so many, so many things that are, I've, I've gotten, I've, I've set some goals. I'm not a goal oriented person. I'm a today person. Like, well, I'm going to set a goal if I could die tomorrow. Like I just, I've never right. thought really about the future. So I've set goals and it's exciting. Like I'm getting my G2 in November. So I'm doing some driving. I'm having so much fun doing it. So just stuff to bring me life and some routine and some spinach. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of spinach, actually. A lot of spinach. Listen, if it was good enough for Popeye. That's true. It's good enough for Popeye. It's good enough for me. Uh, I'm going to finish with this question. And it's okay if you don't have anything for it. Okay, Okay. If someone is listening who is, you know, struggling with their mental health, whether or not they're, you know, consider themselves a Christian, consider themselves as somebody who's trying to follow Christ, what, what would you want to say to them? I would say two words and that's keep going. And whether that looks like sleeping another three hours or staying in bed another day, sometimes that's needed. Some, and that's, that's maybe not even necessarily what's needed, but that's all you can do. Um, sometimes it's saying help. Sometimes it's texting a friend to call or pray or bring you over some chocolate, whatever, you know, or spinach or spinach. spinach. Um, Yeah. Or spinach. 
yeah, I would just keep going. Like that's, that's it because the light does shine. It does shine. Sometimes it seems like it takes a year or 14 or <laughs> three hours, but it comes out and, uh, yeah, to keep going. If, if, if you do believe in Christ, I would say cry out, um, to him, I'd say, reach out, I'd say, reach out to you. Even if you don't believe in Christ, reach out to someone you trust. And if that means just saying, Hey, I need to go to Cam H. Will you come with me? Cause I'm scared. Do that. And then, and then know that you have something to offer and pour out. Like I think serving people has saved my life. I really do. I think so crying out to the Lord, reaching out to people and serving him and pouring out my gifts and such. It, it reminds you, it strengthens your faith and it reminds you that even in your brokenness and your mental health issues and whatever, no, I don't want to say issue, but whatever the case may be that you have something to offer and that, uh, yeah, the pain that you go through and the stuff that you realize can really help somebody else survive when they need to, when they need to keep going, when they need to survive. Fantastic. So thank you, Paula, for, for coming on again uh, and sharing your story. Really appreciate it. And I know anybody who listens uh, is going to get a lot out of it. So yeah, I'm very thankful. Thank you. That's our show for today. Special thanks to Mark Calvitis for the podcast cover art. This podcast deals with some pretty serious topics. If you're struggling with your mental health or are thinking about suicide, please reach out to a trusted friend or some other person you know loves and cares for you. There are also professional supports available. Please go online and visit Crisis Services Canada to find the distress centers and crisis organizations nearest you, or call the Canada Suicide Prevention Service at 1-833-456-4566. They're available to talk 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. If you're under 29, the Kids Help Phone has professional counselors available to provide confidential and anonymous care. Call them toll-free at 1-800-668-6868 or text the word CONNECT, C-O-N-N-E-C-T, to 686868. If you have any questions, feedback, or suggestion about today's or any other episode, please email podcastdarkly21 at gmail.com. If you appreciate and enjoy this podcast, please subscribe or give it a rating on whichever podcast app you use, since apparently that makes it more likely other people will find it. Finally, because it's always good to end with a blessing, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. As always, thanks for listening.